you can uh, grab your Bible and find your way to Colossians. And again, if you're joining us from Don's class, welcome. Uh, we're in Colossians over here. And um, I've just, just gotten out of the uh, first couple of verses of chapter 1, so you haven't missed much. Uh, let me start the PowerPoint here. And there are, are there still some notes back there, James? Okay, so if anybody needs uh, notes, know that there are some back on the back seat there. Okay, thank you, James, for serving us in that way. Uh, Colossians, the title of the study is Christ is First because the point of this letter is that Christ uh, is, well, well, there's, there's just nobody like him. And, and he is one of a kind. He is unique. Uh, he's overall in both his person and his work. And Paul is um, pleading with these Christians that Christ would have first place in their life. And that's what, that's what the whole letter is about, is to make Christ to have first place in your life. And that's set against a backdrop of some teaching that, that's come into the church. And this happens today. I mean, this, happens, this is no different. Uh, you know, it was called the Colossian heresy. Um, but uh, today, uh, we, have, we have such distractions. We have... Uh, books and programs and conferences and blogs and, and and many of those things are helpful and beneficial but but so many of them uh, w- would purport to say hey here is the secret ingredient of uh, a super walk with Jesus I mean this this is the way to just catapult yourself to the upper class of Christianity and uh, and and what it ends up doing is distracting us from what Paul's going to call in another letter, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And uh, we, we never, uh, our Christian life builds upon the work of Christ, but it never moves away from the centrality of the work of Christ. And so that's what Paul is trying to get them back to in this letter. And uh, the first part of it, as you've seen, uh, those of you that have been here, is about prayer uh, this book starts and ends with a plea for uh, praying and uh, lifting up one another and, and really praying without ceasing. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, uh, we are praying always for you. And uh, in verse 9, he says, for this reason, since the day we've heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. So there's this idea that uh, Paul and Timothy, who were writing this letter, are engaged in an ongoing ministry of prayer, lifting up the Colossians and other believers. And then last time... Uh, we, we get to this, set, this section. This is so. You think of think of Colossians like a rocket pad. Okay, can I can I use this? It's like a rocket pad, and and so you're you're reading in verse one. Hi, Paul, and I'm Timothy, and we've been praying for you. And it's it's like the countdown. You know, three, two, one, and he hits verse thirteen, and all five engines of the book of Colossians light up, and he just he just launches, he just takes off. And, and I don't think I'm overstating that because. Uh, This is a book, and particularly this is a section of the book that um, it's just unparalleled in its description of who Jesus is. Uh, We need Colossians today because our Jesus is too small, and our thoughts of God are often uh, way, way underpowered. And uh, so so just let me just read this section and and just just soak this up, okay? And then we'll kind of talk about it here in just a moment. But just just let this impact you again, okay? So he's he's finishing his prayer in verse 12 about what he's praying for, right? And the last thing he says, he, he's praying, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified 
us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, and here's here's the launch here. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's the theme of the whole letter right there. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Okay, we'll stop right there, and let me just break this down. I'll, I'll review a little bit of where we've been last time, and then we'll, we'll get into the new portion today. So, Okay, so really what he's calling us to do, and this goes throughout the lever, but this is where it starts, is he's calling us to meditate on the person and work of Christ. And meditation is something that we probably all struggle with, but meditation is just prolonged thinking about with a view to application. That's meditation, right? We're, we're, we're thinking about something in a sustained amount of time with a view towards saying, what should I do with this? And so that's what he's going to ask us to do with the person of Jesus here. Now remember, <clears throat> Paul, who's a, a really interesting writer, uh, he loves to rearrange things in order to communicate certain focus points in the letter. So what he's going to do, and you probably noticed this as I read, he starts off talking about the works of Jesus. What, what did he do in redemption? And then he moves to talk about the person of Jesus. Who is he? And then he comes back to talk about the works of Jesus again in 20 and 22. And what that does is it brackets the section. It's, it's like an arrow pointing to, as you see illustrated there on the screen, pointing to the person of Christ. And, and it's not that the work of Christ is less important it's just the fact that if Jesus was not who he who he is, then he could not have accomplished what he did. So, so Paul takes out his his uh, spiritual highlighter and, and he and he scribbles on that that description of the person of Christ there to bring emphasis to the fact uh, of who Jesus is. Okay. So last time we talked a little bit about the the works of Christ, and we're calling this the Father's rescue plan. You say, where do you get that? Well, that, that's how Paul introduces this section. At the end of his prayer, verse 12, he says, it was the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. Well, how did he do that? Verse 13, for he, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So this is the Father's rescue plan that utilizes... Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the, the agent of the Father's rescue plan. But before we see who he is, let's just review last time what he does, okay? So the Father's rescue plan, and we say rescue. When, you, when I say rescue, what do you think of? What does that word evoke in your mind? Saving, right? Which begs the question, what? Save from what, right? So, so if you go up to, you know, it's, it's Memorial Day, everybody's coming to Granbury, there's flags everywhere, and, you know, the square's always a, a happening place, and you walk up to somebody on Monday, between the rainstorms, and you say, hey, are you saved? 
And they go, from what? Because save, the idea of being saved or rescued implies danger. It implies uh, uh, I'm, I'm vulnerable to something bad, something, something uh, uh, horrible is going to happen or some bad consequence. So, so what, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to show us the realms in which we need rescue. Okay, we need salvation, we need rescue, but from what? And the answer is not just one thing, it's multiple things. Okay, so this is, this is reviews from last time, but let's just look at it. We need rescue in the context of a kingdom. Okay, you remember this? That, that uh, the Bible describes, he says there, that uh, he's going to rescue us, first of all, from the domain of darkness, the, the, da- the, the domain of sin and Satan and death and wickedness, and he transfers us to the kingdom, it says here, of his beloved son. That this is a kingdom rescue. That this is, uh, this is, um, you know, we're, we're on the wrong side of the battle line and, and the, the, the Navy SEAL, the spiritual Navy SEAL Jesus, he jumps out of the helicopter and he goes back into enemy occupied territory and he rescues us and he brings us back to a different country. And, uh, it's this idea of rescue in terms of kingdom. Uh, is the first realm that he mentions here. Secondly, we need re- we need redemption or rescue from bondage. You'll remember last time this is slavery language now, and the idea is is we picture our our sinful condition, our natural condition coming into the world as one of being a slave to sin. And sin is our master in, in the Bible's metaphor, and we are enslaved to our master sin, which is why we. We, we can't get out from under the, the wickedness and sin and, and things that we struggle with. And so again, Jesus comes in, uh, this time not, not, not the military analogy that we see in the kingdom rescue, but this time it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a slavery block auction uh, picture. And Jesus walks into the auction and he sees sinful people uh, there enslaved to sin and Jesus goes and pays a price to buy that sinner out of sin and bring him into his own uh, family. Okay, and that, that, that's called a ransom price. When you hear the word ransom in the Bible, don't think pirates. You know, because pirates are always asking for ransom, right? Or, it's not like that. Ransom just means the price that Jesus paid to free us from the bondage of sin and bring us into his family. And uh, we know, as we looked at last time, that Jesus offered his own life uh, Mark tells us as a ransom for many, right? So he's not paying money. He's offering his own life as the payment for that rescue. Number three, a third realm of rescue. We need rescue from guilt. Now we go, we go from the military battle lines to the slavery auction block. Now we're in the courtroom. The picture here is of a courtroom and somebody's standing in front of a judge and, and the evidence has been brought and he's been found guilty and uh, Jesus enters the courtroom at, courtroom as it were, and he offers to pay our debt, offering his life as a ransom for many, as again we mentioned with redemption as well. So the idea that we are rescued from guilt uh, through the work of Jesus, sometimes we call that justification, right? When Jesus um, uh, offers to give us his life uh, as a payment to pay our debt, and he at the same time uh, takes on our sins in his place, in our place. Uh, and brings us forgiveness. So rescue from guilt. For a fourth realm is we need rescue from alienation. So we've got we've got the the military battle line. We've got the slavery auction block. We've got the courtroom. Well, here's another picture. This is a picture of a broken relationship. This is a picture of 
of a, of a relationship that something has become between parties and there's been alienation and, and faction and, 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 uh, uh, there, there's no harmony, there's no communication. And so Jesus comes to rescue us from the alienation, the separation that uh, happened when we rebelled against God. And he reconciles us, as Paul says to the Corinthians, he reconciles us to himself through the agency of Jesus. And then finally, we have this idea of rescue from hostility. Again, uh, with that relationship metaphor, this is not just reconciliation. Hey, there's no sin between us. This is harmony and unity and peace that comes there. And then finally, we have a rescue from uh, wickedness. This, is, this moves now to the religious realm of uncleanness and sin, and he rescues us from wickedness in order to make us holy as he is holy. Okay, that's a lot to cover, but that's what you missed last time. So, Okay, so now we're going to move from the work of Christ to that central element, the person of Christ. And, and he's just going to keep on uh, with this description here. So we move from the Father's rescue plan, that's the work of Christ, to the Father's rescue agent. And this is where we pick it up in your notes, okay? So verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now remember, all of this, all of this, guys, don't miss the big point. The whole point of this letter is so that you and I would say, we would conclude, there is no one like Jesus. There, there is no one that is more worth following. There is no one more worthy of our worship and our love and our affection than Jesus. So he's building that case. So as we're reading this, we say, well, why should we follow Jesus? Well, look at this. Because he is the image of the invisible God. So, so on your notes there, uh, he's the image of the invisible God. It's right out of the text, right? So, so pick, but, but read this, read this like, uh, you, you've, you've, uh, been familiar with the Bible. Okay. This is the Bible that way, way back in the Old Testament, when God appears to Moses, he comes in the form of what? Initially, do you remember? The, the, the burning bush, right? Why did he have to do that? Why does he set the bush on fire in order to reveal himself? Because no one can see God, right? And you remember a little bit later, uh, after the golden calf, and, and they're going to redo the Ten Commandments, and Moses is so excited that God forgave the people, he continued on in the, in the, into the promised land, and show me your glory, Lord. And God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. But there's just one little thing. It's like watching a solar eclipse. You, you can't do it with the naked eye. You, you, you will burn your eyeballs out. But, well, it's not really your eyeballs, is it, Doc? Right? It's the cones and the retina and I don't know. Some, anyway, you're, you're gonna you're gonna hurt your eyes if you do that. So what do you have to do if you watch a solar eclipse? You have to you use a welder's glass, or you have to you know put the little pinhole in the paper and watch the little shadow, right? And, and so that's what God does with Moses in Exodus 34. He puts him in the rock and he, he hides him in the rock because he can't see the undiluted glory of the face of God, can he? And all throughout the Bible, we see visions and and theophanies where God takes on some sort of a form, but nobody. Nobody has really seen God, have they? Well, one day, John the Baptist is down by the Jordan River, and he's baptizing. And he looks out and he says, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We say, what is that all about? Well, John, the gospel writer, writes the commentary on that in John chapter 1. What does he say? He says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is at the side of the Father, 
You remember what he says? He, Jesus, has explained him, the Father. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is as close to God as we can possibly get. And, and, and can you imagine that? Can you imagine eating fish with Jesus? People actually did that. Can you imagine, you know, Jesus is right there in his sleeping bag and you're sleeping right next to him, you know, out, out in the woods somewhere, right? Or, or singing with Jesus or watching him preach or, you know, going to a wedding in Cana with him, or, or, right? And, and they walked with him and they talked with him and they, they went fishing with him and drove and rode around in boats and, and that, that's, that's God incarnate. Uh, it, it, like Wesley, like Wesley penned in that famous Christmas hymn, right? Uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, See, that's what he's saying. He's he's saying we've never had this proximity with God before because Jesus comes in the person uh, of um, the second person of the Trinity to explain God. And that's what that's what um, Paul is saying here. He's the image of the invisible God. And notice his language here. He um, he is the image of the invisible God. That that image means that word image means exact copy or representation. And his language here is interesting. He's the image of the invisible God, right? You, you can't see God. He's invisible. But Jesus, as he comes in the incarnation, uh, takes on a human body such that we can know him and see him. And, and this is why Jesus is the culmination of revelation, right? Jesus is the way that we know God most clearly and most closely. So that, that's, that's the first aspect there of the person of Christ. Notice this also. He's the firstborn of all creation, right? So he says here, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that, that, that bothers a lot of Christians because they go, wait a minute. That makes it sound like Jesus had a beginning. And I thought he was God. And I, I thought, I thought John said that, uh, Jesus has always been with the Father, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? So what's this firstborn part? And that's why I put in your notes there the word supreme over. Firstborn doesn't mean that he was born like, like there was a time that Jesus didn't exist. What he's saying is he is supreme over all creation. And this is, this is building an argument, right? So you gotta follow this. He's the image of the invisible God, right? He's God in human flesh. And he's supreme over everything in creation. And, and he's gonna come back to that in a moment. But that's what that word means. So the firstborn idea has the idea of he's supreme over creation. And, and that's important because verse 16 tells us what? For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Uh, That's really, really incredible, isn't it? That he made everything. And notice, not just everything we can see, he said things visible and invisible. And do you see a little description there? Thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities. What's that referring to? This is the part where you talk. That's your cue. Jump in. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities refers to what? Yeah, so earthly powers, earthly kings. And then as the more he talks, the more the language blurs from human kings, human rulers, to those in the heavenly places. So we're thinking about uh, angelic rulers. We're thinking about that whole realm 
of, of spiritual beings that we know exist, but we don't see or interact with much. And, um, you know, we think, we think about what the Bible tells us about demons and the work of Satan. And, and, uh, and Jesus is saying, you know what? I created everything, including all of those things. Okay. Now, now some of you have seen this before. I don't know a better exercise to, to try to just nail this because you and I read that and we go, okay, cool. We got the Hubble Space Telescope. We're sending people to Mars, right? We, we, he, he made everything. Well, let me just put that in perspective for you for a minute, okay? That's Earth. Friendly Earth, the blue planet, right? Earth exists in a solar system, right? How many of you studied the solar system? Okay, so you got some planets there you recognize, Mars and Jupiter. And where's, where's Dave Hubbard? Is Hubbard here? Okay, I need my, our, our resident expert astronomer here. So anyway, ask Dave if you have any questions about this. So, so there's Earth and it's in the solar system, okay? And, uh, and our solar system is just one solar system. See it there, the little red one? Uh, in what's called an interstellar neighborhood, right? You didn't know you resided in an interstellar neighborhood, did you? But you do. Uh, our solar system exists in an interstellar neighborhood, and you see all those other little uh, dots, those bright dots. There are other suns that have other that are, represent other solar systems. Okay, so there's our solar system in the midst of an interstellar solar system, and our interstellar solar system is just one. It's that little red dot right there in the whole Milky Way galaxy, which you're familiar with, right? That's our galaxy. Are you with me? Okay, so let's review. Jesus created all things. You say, what's all things, Pastor Keith? Well, that's our Earth. That's our solar system. That's our interstellar neighborhood, one solar system in the neighborhood. And we're just one neighborhood in the metroplex called the Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is just one galaxy in our local galactic group. And no, that's not something from Star Wars that actually is real. Okay, there's Milky Way right there in the middle. And you see we've got uh, other Milky Way galaxies. You'll recognize some of these. Ursa Major, right? That's the um, the, dip, the Big Dipper, right? And uh, so some of those star uh, uh, clusters, constellations that we see actually represent other galactic and uh, other galaxies within our galactic group. And our local galactic group is just one galactic group in the Virgo supercluster, which is, that's our little local galactic group in the supercluster. Are you with me still? And our Virgo supercluster is just one supercluster in a series of local superclusters. And our Virgo supercluster in the series of local superclusters. So now we have a region of superclusters that exists in one little dot of the observable universe. You should be feeling very small right now. Jesus made all that. Just let that seek in for a minute. He made all that. Um, you see, how big is that? So that, that, there's our review here, okay? Earth, solar system, interstellar neighborhood, Milky Way galaxy, local galactic group, Virgo supercluster, local supercluster, observable universe, and that observable universe is 5.5, and that add 23 zeros to the back of that in miles. Or for you nerds out there, that's 93 billion light years. Um, look by the text. For by him 
all things were created. That's just, it's mind-blowing. And of course, when the Colossians read that, they looked up the heavens and said, man, that's pretty amazing. We have technology to quantify what that means better than any other generation. Um, so if you're ever feeling a little more highly of your, about yourself than you ought to think, and your Jesus is a little bit too small, you go up at night, you look up at the stars, and you remind yourself uh, of who he really is and what he does. And, and that we are, we are just a drop in the ocean. Our galaxy is just a drop in the ocean uh, of all of this. But notice it. So, so it's not just amazing that Jesus made all this, okay? So let, let's go a step further. Not only did he make it all, but notice the description here. Uh, all thing, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, now watch this. All things have been, been created through him, meaning he was the agent of creation. So you go back and read Genesis. Let there be light. Who's talking? It's probably Jesus. Go back and read Genesis 1 when it says, God said, comma, open quote, that's probably Jesus talking, okay? It might be God the Father and Jesus is implementing, but the the New Testament is clear that Jesus is the one actually doing the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So he's doing that. So he created all things. All things have been created through him. Now, the prepositions here are important, okay? So if you didn't do so well in grammar school, you need to go figure out prepositions. This is really important. All things have been created through him, right? He did it. And what? And for him. Or your Bible might say unto him. You say, what does that mean? Jesus made all of this for himself. What does Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. Your new grandbaby declares the glory of God. Uh, the, 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 the beautiful, you seen the sunsets we've had where those thunderheads go through and you know, we're just trying to avoid the hail and the tornadoes and then it all blows through and the sun pops out as it sets in the west and you get these beautiful colors and cloud formations and we've seen rainbows recently and, and that, that's Jesus saying, see, see, so that we'll see him for who he is. The, the universe declares the glory of God. And we just kind of get in our little world sometime. We get in a little world and we, we forget that there's, there is the, uh, the, 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 the canvas of the divine artist and his work in every moment of every point of life. And we just need to open our eyes and, and think about that and, and realize that and see that. And, and that, that's what keeps Christ big in our minds so he's the creator of all things but he's also the goal of all things meaning he made all those things for himself to bring him glory now if we were to go talk to that plant right there that you can see through the window and say mr plant how do you bring jesus glory well first of all people around you would think you're weird because plants don't talk and they don't understand what you're saying but that plant does what what does it do It grows, it might produce fruit, right? It might 
have flowers on it, but it, it declares the glory of God through its beauty primarily, or maybe through its provision if it's a, a fruit-bearing tree or something like that, right? And you think that, that a star declares the glory of Christ through its power, through its light, through its heat, through the thermonuclear reactions that power the whole thing. I mean, just the whole thing just says, this is God's work. And then you get all the way down to his most incredible creation, which is you. And you see that little guy sitting back there declaring the glory of God, right? In our, in our systems, in our bodies, in our capabilities, in our talents, in our gifts, in the fun that we have, in the emotions we experience. But, but most particularly, we glorify Jesus. He made us so that we will image Him, right? We'll reflect His character in our lives. And so all of this creation is designed to bring Christ glory, but it's also designed to demonstrate that He made us for himself and that we that's where we find our purpose and and value and and joy we read it in psalm 16 right in your right hand are pleasures forever uh and we say well how can he do that because he made us for himself to know joy in him so he's the creator of all things he's the goal of all things that's how i'm wording that he made all things for himself now watch this verse 17 uh, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So let's let's go back to the chart. I mean, look at that. So, so we, we just ooh and awe at a static picture of that. But everything represented there is dynamically alive right now. It, it is running. The, the, the engine of the universe is churning right now. And, and there are, there are stars that are radiating light. Our, our planet right now is rotating and it's going around the sun and the moon and, and, and think of all the systems going on right now. Our atmosphere that provides, uh, protection from radiation from the sun and, and it, it houses, uh, the gases that we need like oxygen to breathe and live and, and there's things going on in your body right now. There's blood being pumped and, you know, your breakfast, right? Your stomach is, is breaking down your breakfast and energy is going into your body so that you can stay awake and that caffeine is kicking. Oh man, that caffeine from that coffee you had, you know, it's, it's making you pay attention to me right now and, right? All those things are going on right there and they're running and they're moving. Mom's gonna get on an airplane here. Go back to California this afternoon and, you know, the captain is not gonna get on you know, when they're getting ready to take off at DFW and say, uh, uh, good morning, this American Airlines cap, or, uh, uh, flight 2943, service to John Wayne Orange County Airport. Uh, it's Captain Smith here in the left seat. And uh, we're just uh, completing some final tests to make sure that Mr. Bernoulli's equations still work for airplane wings. Because, you know, we don't want this airplane to fall out of the sky at 45,000 feet when all of a sudden the lift stops. Why do we never question that? Because Jesus perfectly runs his universe every day. And we get up in the morning and he does it again. We get up in the morning and he does it again. And, and what we consider normal life is the effect of his sustaining, powerful, precise work. 
And uh, I geek out on you too much, but that's all science is. All science is doing is mathematically modeling how Jesus runs his universe every day. And that's why you should be science people, right? That's why it's cool, man. So, okay, so back here. So he, he's the creator of all things. He's the goal of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. I mean, he, it, it, you can't see it, but his hands are around that whole thing. And, and you think, yeah, you know, he, you know, he's at the master control booth. He's pulling all the levers and pushing all the buttons. Yeah. And then what does the Bible say? He knows every single hair on your head. He knows every time a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows the cattle on a thousand hills, right? So it's not that he's like this, this, you know, divine cosmic runner of the universe. He's this personal, intricate, Savior who knows every need you have. He knows every thought you've ever thought. And as we saw in our psalm, he walks with us in all things. This is our Savior. All right, got to keep going here. So he's the goal of all things, right? He's the sustainer of all things. He's also, notice this, verse 18, the head of the body, the church. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, so he's the head of the body. We, we see this played out that when he came, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the goal of all things, and he dies and rises from the dead to be uh, the husband of a new bride that he's going to call the church. And those are believers. And he is the head of that body. We have different metaphors, right? Husband and wife. He's the husband. Uh, uh, the church is the bride. He is the head. And the church is the body represented in that way. Um, so he is the one at the helm of our uh, people, of our relationships uh, in what we're doing here as the one in charge. You know, we think of, you know, we're, we're an elder-led church, right? But we're an elder-led church, but Jesus alone is the head of the church, isn't he? Uh, there, there's no priest, there's no pastor, there's no ecclesiastical authority, there's no denomination. Jesus is the head of the church. And, and we all function as, as under-shepherds under the great shepherd, don't we? And so he is providing leadership and care. You think, while he's running the universe, what else is he doing? You think that, well, he's like this, this really smart scientist who pulls all the levers and all that. But, but notice the metaphor here. He, he's the husband who tenderly cares for his bride as well. And he was, verse 18 says there, the firstborn from the dead. And what that means is he came, took on human flesh to live and die and then rise again. And he is the first one to do that because he is the first one to demonstrate that death has been defeated in his work. And if we are in Christ, what does scripture say? We will rise one day too. We will be raised in the likeness of the glorified Christ, won't we? So he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the goal, he's the head of the body, he's the firstborn from the dead. And why all of that? Okay, so all of that is to get to, well, he says it here, we'll come back to it in a moment. All of that is to get to this little phrase, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We'll do 19, we'll come back to that, okay? It was the Father's good pleasure for, for all the fullness to dwell in him. That word fullness refers to his deity. When Jesus became a man, he did not cease to be God. He 
he uh, continued to be 100% God but took on a human nature so that he is all God and all man in the same person. And that's what he's getting at here is in Christ, or excuse me, um, it was the Father's good pleasure for Christ to have all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And that kind of puts us back to verse 15, right? He's the image of the invisible God. So you, you, again, Paul loves these bookends, right? So the, the, whole, the whole book of Colossians, it starts with prayer, it ends with prayer. This little section, it starts with the, with the work of Christ and the work of Christ and the person of Christ is in the middle. And in the beginning of this section, it starts with the fact that he's all God and it ends with the fact that he's all God. So Paul is doing these things to emphasize the greatness of Jesus. And we say, so for what purpose is all, are all these things true? He's the image and the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the goal of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the fullness of deity. We say, why? Come back to verse 18 now with me, the very end there. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Listen to this. He's already first place in everything else. And Paul says he's first place in everything else because God made you for Christ so that Christ would have first place in your life as well. Um, not, not like, you know, first place and then I go on to my other things. But Jesus is to have the preeminence. He is to be, uh, he, he is the person that we wrap every realm of our life around is the idea. And you say, how do we know that? How do we know that? That's, that's his intention here, right? Well, he himself will come to have first place in everything. The whole rest of the book shows that that's true. Okay, so here, here's the argument. There's no one like Christ. Who he is, what he's done, there's no one like him. And because of that, he ought to have first place in your life, in every area of your life. Now, watch how Paul develops that. Look at your notes here, okay? He's to have first place in your personal life. That's chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. He's to have first place in your relationships. That's chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. He's to have first place in your family. That's chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. He's to have first place when you're at work and how you do your work. That's chapter 3, verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. He's to have first place in your devotions in your walk with God every day. That's chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. He's to have first place in sharing the gospel with other people or your evangelism. That's chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. And so you see, the whole rest of the letter is designed to take this thought, here's Jesus, he made you for himself, he's to have first place in everything, and then the whole rest of the letter is designed to give you specifics on what that actually means. You're like, okay, so how do I make Jesus first place when I'm at work? I mean, it's just work and I just do work, right? That's all it is. And, and Paul says, well, let me help you with that. You're to do your work heartily like you're doing it for Jesus and not your boss. That's how Jesus is first place in your work. You say, well, what does that look like in my family? Well, he's going to talk about husbands and wives and kids. And what's that look like in my personal life? Well, he's going to talk about personal holiness and, and what you spend your time on and your money on and, and how you handle emotions and, and all these sorts of things. So, so that's the whole thing is to make Christ to have first place in everything. And if you get that, you know what the whole letter's about. Because that's, that's, that, he's just going to keep coming back to that and coming back to that and coming back to that.
Okay? Now, if you're going to make Christ to have first place in everything, there's one little thing you need to do first. And so come back with me to chapter 1, and let's pick it up where we left off. Okay? So, so we got this great description of who Jesus is and what he's done, and he's to have first place in everything. That's his argument. Now look at verse 21. So he's talking about Jesus, right? Talking about Jesus, talking about Jesus, talking about Jesus. Verse 21. And although, what's the next word? You. There's a change in pronouns here, okay? He's been talking about Jesus. Jesus did this and Jesus did that and Jesus did this other thing. And then he turns the corner and Paul looks the Colossians square in the eye and he says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled, what's the next word? You in his fleshly body through death in order to present, are you getting the idea? You before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed, oh, come on, there's three of you. Come on, all of you should be doing this now. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which I, Paul, was made a minister. What did he just do? Guys, this is, this is so helpful if you get this. Because I know that everything we just talked about, you probably knew, right? You knew Jesus ran the universe, and you knew he made everything, and you knew he was the firstborn of the church. You know all that. That doesn't help you when all you do is know it. Okay? You ready for this? You have to personalize theology, or it will not transform you. To know facts about the gospel is not transformative. You have to personalize that theology for it to have any effect in your life. And first and foremost, that means you repent and trust Jesus alone for your salvation, right? And Paul's assuming that here with the Colossians. And so now he says, take all of this. And he says, remember, you were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were apart from God. You were uh, residing in that realm of darkness. You were a slave to sin. You were, were guilty in the courtroom of God. You, you were indicted by all of these things. And yet what did he do? He rescued you. He forgave you. He broke the bonds of sin for you. He, he transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son for you. Right? You get the idea? And that's what Paul's doing here. You have to personalize your theology. And this is so much the point, guys. We, we fail to walk in a way where Christ has first place, not because we don't necessarily know, God, we lack, lack knowing gospel facts, but because we don't live going, I've been redeemed. I've been saved. I've been rescued. I was once living like that. I was once in bondage and he rescued me. And that personalization of theology is what launches you out into walking with Christ in these different areas of life. Do you see that? It's a really subtle pronoun change, but it's so significant because if we keep Jesus at arm's distance as a theoretical savior, we will not see transformation in our life. He has to be our Savior. And we have to meditate on Him as our 
Savior. So, so watch this. So, so notice the language change. Us and we, you know, Paul and Timothy, right? And then he turns the corner, all things, right? And then he says you in 20 to 21 and 23 there. And notice, we have to ask the question, right? Do you qualify as you? Paul's assuming that the Colossians have trusted in Christ. But look at what he, notice the warning. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. He's saying, have you trusted in this Christ? Is your faith real? So that you can say, this is my Savior and this is what he's done for me. You say, how do we access the person and work of Christ? Well, he says, he says it there in 23. It is through faith and faith alone, right? Notice with me there. If indeed you continue in faith. So it is the faith is the access point by which we come to know uh, Jesus. So this is a, we could say it like this. It's a steadfast faith in an immovable gospel. Right, A great Savior who has gone before us, who made all things, who sustained all things, who works the work of redemption. He jumps into the pool of, of humanity and rescues us out of the uh, drowning waters of sin and death. And he brings us into his kingdom and into his family. And we, we know him. We know that through a simple faith in an immovable gospel that is brought by such a great Savior. Okay? Wow. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have been so kind to us in Christ and thinking about your immensity, your greatness, your power, your creation and sustaining of this universe, uh, and yet the way that you know us intimately and personally and that you have called us personally out of darkness and into light and we Uh, We confess that so often we don't think about these things or we allow these things to become old hat and boring and known and, and we don't meditate upon them and personalize them as saying, that was me, but Jesus rescued me. Father, I pray as we would think more and longer and more regular about the person of Jesus and his work and we personalize that theology by remembering that He came to save us. He came to save me. That we would grow in our estimation, our thoughts of Christ, that we would, our thoughts of ourself would grow smaller and that that would embolden us and empower us to make Christ to have first place in everything. We, we so desire that He would be Lord and Master over every realm of our life. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this incredible picture of who He is and what He's done. We're thankful and we pray in his name. Amen.